All right, we're ready for chapter 34 of the book of Jeremiah. We have uh, four chapters we're going to try to cover this evening, chapters 34 uh, through 37. Uh, Dad is under the weather this evening, uh, so I'll be filling in. He hopes to be back here on Sunday. Uh, so we're ready for chapters 34 through 37. Uh, we are going to the second major point in uh, our outline that we've been looking at each week. Uh, where chapters uh, 2 through 30, 33 had to do, was a national message uh, to Judah. We are now beginning here in chapter 34, uh, the main section, chapters 34 through 35. Uh, our chapters, uh, yeah, 34 through 45, dear, is a personal section that deal with Jeremiah's sufferings. And uh, more specifically, we're talking about things that take place uh, before the siege of Jerusalem in tonight's lesson in chapters 34 through 37. Uh, quite the contrast from what we saw last week as uh, chapters 30 through 33 uh, mainly dealt with future blessings that, uh, that, that there is a hope for uh, Judah. And there are some future blessings uh, that they would return uh, physically and then some messianic blessings. Uh, so we saw a lot of good news in last week's lesson and then we kind of shift back from looking at those future blessings and we look at the present reality. And in tonight's lesson, we're gonna see uh, why Judah is worthy of this punishment, why Judah is worthy of uh, this uh, captivity that they are about to enter into. So we're gonna be looking at these four chapters this evening, uh, this kind of just a high level summary of each chapter. Uh, again, we're seeing reasons why they're worthy of, of this punishment. We're gonna see in chapter 34, their uh, hypocrisy. Uh, they are obeying out of fear. Uh, we'll talk about that in chapter 34. Chapter 35, we'll see the example of the Rechabites. Here's a, a good example for the, the uh, Jews to look to of someone who was obedient to their physical father, uh, but yet uh, the Jews could not be obedient to their heavenly father. Chapter 36, we'll see Jehoiakim's arrogant rebellion as we see him cut up the scroll there and throw it into the fire. And then chapter 37, we'll see Jeremiah's arrest and um, and imprisonment. Uh, as oftentimes is the case as, we, as we've been studying through Jeremiah, this doesn't necessarily follow a chronological thought. Uh, in tonight's lesson, in these four chapters, we're dealing with the, the last three kings uh, of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, that was Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah. Uh, we're going to deal with all three of those kings in tonight's lesson, but we kind of jump around. Chapter 34, uh, we're talking about the time frame of Zedekiah, the last king. In chapters 35 and uh, 36, we talk, we're talking about the time frame of Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. And then in chapter 37, we go back to the time frame of Zedekiah. So don't let that confuse you. This is not necessarily in, in chronological order, uh, as, as was, has been pointed out in, in previous uh, lessons as well. Uh, but that shouldn't prevent us from, from getting the overall uh, lesson and message uh, of these chapters. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, what, what he takes from, uh, from Harkrider, and this is going to be broken down further for each chapter tonight. But chapters 34 through 36, we're going to see a contrast, and it's a contrast of uh, in attitudes, obedience versus disobedience, and that's illustrated by things that take place during the reigns of Zedekiah and Jehoiakim, as I've already mentioned. And then as we get into chapter 37, those are, that's a prophecy uh, dealing directly with uh, Zedekiah and things that would take place during his reign. Uh, so if you're not already open there, let's open to chapter 34. 
And again, we're seeing a contrast in attitudes, and this is why Judah is worthy of this punishment. Uh, point A here, under Zedekiah, Judah hypocritically obeyed out of fear. We're going to see that, that uh, Zedekiah seemingly turns and, and starts doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, but it's very short-lived, uh, and it's, he, he's doing it out of fear uh, because the Babylonian army is coming in, and uh, the, the siege, is, as we start in verse 1 here in just a moment, the siege has already taken place. Uh, that the army is already there, the Babylonian army is already there, and out of fear, Zedekiah for a moment turns to God, but then they quickly break their covenant. So verses 1 through 10, we're going to see that when uh, Babylon is ready to overthrow Jerusalem, they release their slaves, uh, that's part, part of the old law that they were fulfilling by doing that, and then point 2 here, 11 through 22, is when deliverance seemed probable, they ignored God's law, and brought those slaves back. So what, what we're going to see happen, and actually before we begin in chapter 34, I want us to flip over to chapter 52 to get our minds wrapped around the time frame that we're looking at. So open to chapter 52. In verse 4, it says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year, this is talking about the reign of Zedekiah, now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month on the tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came up against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. You might write out to the side of verse 4 there that that's 588 B.C. So this is the first time that Jerusalem or that uh, Babylon uh, comes up against Jerusalem. Now, continue on in verse Verse uh, 5, so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. That's two years later. This siege lasted uh, anywhere from 18 months to two years. So they first came up against the city in 588. They get distracted by the Egyptians. We're going to see that in tonight's lesson in chapter, uh, uh, we'll particularly see it in chapter 37. But uh, they get distracted by the Egyptians and they go south to deal with the Egyptians. So they leave Judah temporarily, but then they come back. And so that siege of, of Jerusalem lasted roughly 18 months to, uh, to 24 months. Uh, so that just kind of gives us a time frame of what we're looking at here. When we, if we back up to chapter 34 and verse 1, this is in 588 B.C. Uh, you might uh, make a note of that out beside uh, verse 1 there. Uh, Jeremiah is going to give a warning to Zedekiah here. And he tells him in verse 2, that here's what's going to happen to the city. Here's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. The city's going to be burned. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, uh, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Babylonians, and they will burn it with fire. And then as we get into verse 3, he's going to start talking to Zedekiah directly. Here's some things that are going to happen uh, to you directly. Uh, you shall not escape from his hand, verse 3, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon, and, you shall, and he shall speak with you face to face. You may have a footnote in verse 3 that says mouth to mouth. Uh, so he's, he's prophesying to him, he's telling them that not only are, are the Babylonians coming in, but they're going to capture you, and you're going to be looking Nebuchadnezzar right in the eye. You're going to see him face to face. You're going to talk to him mouth to mouth. Uh, verse 4, he continues on, about what's going to happen to Zedekiah, and that is that he is not going to die by the sword. 
which seems like some comforting words, but we're going to see what does happen to Zedekiah. But verse 4 says, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, Concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. But verse 5 says, You shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they shall burn incense for you, and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. So he's telling them, you're going to have a proper, proper uh, royal ceremonial uh, funeral. You're not going to die by the sword. However, Zedekiah might have rather died by the sword, because this is getting into next week's lesson, but jump over to chapter 39. Here's what happens to Zedekiah. He's telling them, you're not going to die by the sword. But I believe if I was in Jeremiah, uh, Zedekiah's shoes, I would have rather died by the sword. Chapter 39 and verse 4 says, So it was when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them, and they fled, and they went out of the city by night and by the way of the king's garden and the gate between the two walls. And he went out by the plain, but the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's the fulfillment of that prophecy. You're going to see him face to face. You'll see Nebuchadnezzar face to face, mouth to mouth. Uh, Pick up in verse 6 of chapter 39. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon also killed the nobles of Judah. Verse 7, moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes. His sons were killed in his presence, uh, and that was the last thing he saw before his eyes were plucked out. So it, it, it may not be too comforting to Zedekiah to know back in chapter 34 that you're not going to die by the sword, but uh, some pretty bad things are still going to happen Uh, to Zedekiah. Uh, Verses 6, if we back up to chapter 34 now, verses 6 and 7 talks about two cities that remained, uh, particularly in verse 7, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these two fortified cities remained. Just to give you an idea where those uh, two Cities are circled here in relation to uh, Jerusalem up here. They're both southwest of Jerusalem. Those were two of the oldest cities. My understanding is those cities were set up by Rehoboam at the very beginning of the divided kingdom, and he set those up as fortified cities. And here, verse 7 tells us that those were the last two cities uh, that are remaining here. Uh, And picking up at verse uh, 8. In verses 8 through 10, we're going to see that there's going to be a p- betrayal that is committed against their slaves. They're going to make a, uh, a covenant that seems very good. Uh, it's in alliance with, with God's law, but we're going to see it's very short-lived. Uh, pick up with me in verse 8. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem and proclaimed liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, uh, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. This was the fulfillment of law. Uh, In fact, uh, Will kind of touched on this uh, Sunday night in his lesson of talking about the year of Jubilee. Uh, Every seven years in Deuteronomy chapter 15, they were told to release their slaves. Uh, And that was put in place because Oftentimes, the, uh, the children of Israel would become indebted to one another to the point that they would sell themselves into slavery with one another. And God set in order uh, that every seven years they were to be released. Uh, so what Zedekiah and, and the people are doing here is a good thing. It's a noble thing. They're going to be commended for that when we get down to verse 15. Uh, they are fulfilling the law by doing this. And verse 10 says, all the people complied. Now, when all the princes and all the people 
who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves and that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. If we just stopped at verse 10, we think, good. that They did exactly what, what God wanted them to do. Uh, they, they're turning back to him, uh, at least in this one small part of the law, they're turning back to God. They're doing what God had told them to do. But, verse 11 starts with the word but. But, afterward they changed their minds. So that gets into our second point here. When deliverance seemed probable, they ignored God's law. Now, we may raise the question, what made Zedekiah all of a sudden uh, seemingly want to turn and do God's will? Well, uh, I like Humphrey's thought on this. He says, we're not told why Zedekiah made this covenant concerning the release of slaves. Some suggest that the obvious threat of destruction gave rise to the frantic hope that somehow this act of obedience to the law of God would move the Lord to deliver the people. It may well be that some had the attitude that Isaiah dealt with years before, the notion that if one does, does some good things for the Lord, that they will offset bad things. It's, it's almost as if this is just a last-ditch effort. Uh, they can see the army there. The Babylonians are there uh, setting up their siege against the city, and let's make this last-ditch effort to do something uh, that might be pleasing to God, and, and maybe, maybe we won't be punished. And for a while, it seems like it worked because the Babylonians are going to be distracted by the Egyptians and go deal with them before they come back to, to Jerusalem. And that's probably why in verse 11, they changed their minds. Because this is during that time frame when the Babylonians would have left to deal with the Egyptians. And so verse 11, go back to our outline here. Um, verse 11, it says, but afterward, they changed their minds and they made the male and female uh, servants uh, return. And in doing so, verses 12 through 14, they had broke God's covenant. Uh, they had broke the covenant that they had made with, with the people, and this was a covenant that God had made. And, and I think the point is that uh, the, the children of Judah were very fickle in, in their covenant making. They did not take it very seriously. They didn't take seriously the covenants that they had made with God. And in this instance, they did not take it very seriously, the, the covenant that they had made with their slaves. And he, uh, he relays to them what the law says in verse 14, that at the end of seven years, that every man set free his Hebrew brother who had been sold to him. And when he had served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not hear me or incline your ear. In verse 15, he commends the people. He's saying, you did what was right even though it was, it was very short-lived. Verse 15, Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made the covenant. In verse 16, But then you turned around and profaned my name. Their obedience was very short-lived. Uh, and we're going to see, jumping down to verse 17, here's going to be the punishment because uh, because you have not kept this covenant. You haven't kept your covenant with God. You haven't kept your covenant with these people. Therefore, verse 17, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you. And it's almost as if God is, and Jeremiah are using a little bit of humor here. He's saying, you want liberty or, or you want to abuse liberty? Then I'm going to give you liberty. Uh, you're going to have liberty from, from my care and liberty from my blessings. I'm going to hand you over, verse 17, uh, I'll hand you over to the sword, to pestilence, to famine. I'll give you liberty. 
uh, I'll, I'll hand you over uh, to your enemies. I will set you free to your enemies. Uh, seems to be the, the message that, that God and Jeremiah are giving them there. Uh, we jump down to verse uh, 20. Uh, I, I will give them into the hand of their enemies. This is, again, part of their punishment. Into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds uh, of the heaven and the, and the beast of the earth. You might make a note out beside verse 20 to see Deuteronomy uh, 28 and verse 26. If you remember in Deuteronomy 28 when they had the, the blessings and the curses that were pronounced from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 26, one of the curses that they were given that if you don't obey this law, one of the curses is you're not going to have a proper burial and the birds of the air will come and, and basically eat your corpse. Uh, and, and that's exactly what he tells them is going to happen. So verse 20, that is a curse of violated law. You're not, you're not even going to have a proper, uh, proper burial. Uh, and then he, uh, if we back up in verse, uh, I skipped verses 18 and 19, but it talks about cutting a calf into two parts. That was uh, a very old form of covenant making that dated back even to the time of Abraham. You might make note that in Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Abraham made a covenant with God by splitting a calf in half and, and walking between them. Uh, that was just, an, I'm not sure the significance of that, uh, but that was just a form of covenant making, and that's what these people did here. Uh, verses, uh, finishing up this chapter, verses 21 and 22, that the, he's, he's going to tell them that the Babylonians, yes, they have departed to go deal with the Egyptians, but it's only temporary. They are going to return. Uh, verse 22, Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Uh, so that's most likely why they they went back on their covenant and took their slaves back because the Babylonian army seemingly was leaving. Uh, but God says, no, they're coming back. Verse 22, uh, they're coming back and they're going to burn the city just like I have, uh, have told you they're going to do. Um, so we learn uh, several things from this chapter in chapter 34. One is don't wait to the last minute to serve the Lord. Uh, that's exactly what uh, Zedekiah was doing. By this point, Zedekiah had been king for at least nine years. Uh, so where's Zedekiah been these past nine years? Why now all of a sudden are you saying, oh, we're going to do what the, what the law tells us. We're going to release our slaves. Don't wait to the last minute uh, to serve the Lord. And we see that today uh, in our present life. You may see uh, someone who maybe they go all their lives and have no interest in spiritual things, no interest in spiritual matters. Maybe they don't ever darken the door of the church for 20 or 30 years. And then when they're staring death in the eye and they're, and they're on their deathbed, all of a sudden they want uh, someone to come pray with them, come pray for them. Uh, and I don't want to make light of that because a lot of people have, have come to Christ on their deathbed. But it raises the question, where have you been all your life? Uh, and, and you could raise that question about Zedekiah. Where have you been? Why now? Why, when Babylon is literally coming into the city, why now are you turning? Uh, don't wait to the last minute to serve the Lord. Uh, Chapter 35, we're going to see a great example, uh, and we're kind of backing up in time now. So 34 was during the reign of Zedekiah. Now we're backing up to things that take place during the reign of Jehoiakim. And we're going to see an example of the Rechabites' faith. 
Uh, now, we don't have time to turn back and look at these passages, but a couple passages you might make note of uh, that kind of explain to us, explains to us who these Rechabites were. We don't really know a lot about them. First Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 55 tells us that they were a clan or a tribe of the Kenites. And Judges chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us that the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So the Rechabites here were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And they're going to be commended here. And uh, uh, I think the point of this chapter is here the Rechabites were loyal to their physical father, Jonadab, as we're going to see. Uh, and he's going to use that as a means to try to teach the Jews uh, in Judah a lesson that you couldn't even be loyal uh, to your heavenly father. And yet these people were, were loyal to their, to their physical, fleshly father. Um, and so a test is going to be given to them in verses 1 through uh, 5 here. Or uh, if we're looking at this outline, verses 1 through 11, they faithfully are obedient to their father. Verses 12 through 19, had Israel obeyed like them, uh, they would have been blessed. Uh, and this punishment would not have come upon them. So he's kind of pointing to these, this tribe of people, the Rechabites, and, and putting his people to shame uh, that, that you should have been obedient like they were. So a test is going to be given to these Rechabites in verses 1 through 5. And uh, the test is that they would be brought into the temple. Wine would be set before them. Uh, and verse 5 says, I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. Now, this may, may sound quite strange. Why is God bringing these, these, this group of people into the temple and uh, telling them to drink wine? Well, uh, again, I quote from Humphreys here. He said, God, who knows the hearts of men, knew that the Rechabites would refuse the wine and thus illustrate the point that he wants to make to Israel. The Rechabites were loyal to their father's word, while the Israelites were disloyal to their heavenly father's word. Uh, obviously, God knew how this was going to play out, but he's, he's using this as an illustration to his people, saying, you should have been more like, uh, more like the Rechabites. So he tests them and brings, brings this wine before them in verse, uh, verse 5 there. Beginning at verse 6, they're going to refuse the wine, and they're going to tell why they are refusing the wine. But they said in verse 6, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, nor your sons forever. And he gives more rules that, that Jonadab gave them. Verse 7, you shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, or any of these things, uh, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Uh, so the, the, they live kind of a, a nomadic lifestyle, just kind of a sojourners dwelling uh, dwelling in tents and if we pick up in verse 8 we're going to see that their faithful obedience to their father Jonadab it says thus we have obeyed the voice of, of Jonadab the son of Rechab our father and all that he charged us to, to drink no wine all of our days we our wives our sons and our daughters nor to build for ourselves houses. They're saying we, we've done exactly what our father Jonadab told us to do. Now, you, you might make note that this same Jonadab had assisted Jehu, king of Israel, in, in eliminating Baal worship uh, under the reign of King Ahab. 
Uh, that's in 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 15, that, that he had helped, uh, verse 15 and also verse 23, he had helped eliminate Baal worship under the, the reign of, of King Ahab. And the point is, they were obedient to their father. They did exactly what their, their physical father had told them to do, but yet Judah could not do that. Verse 11 tells us why, these, why this nomadic people would have been in Jerusalem. It says, but it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, come, let us go into Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwelt in Jerusalem. So they came to try to get some... Uh, some security and some protection behind the walls of Jerusalem. Normally they would have been far out from the city dwelling in tents, uh, living that nomadic lifestyle. But during this siege, they had come into the city. Now picking up at, at verse 12, point uh, number two here, uh, Jeremiah and God begins to make some application. Uh, he tells them, he starts by telling them the story of the Rechabites. Now he's going to point the finger back at Judah and make some application uh, to them. He says, uh, beginning at verse, uh, at verse 12, or verse 13, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and obey my words? In other words, could you not be more like the Rechabites? Um, and he's saying that, they obeyed their heavenly father, or their earthly father, in verse 14. But I, verse 15, I have sent to all my servants, sent you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, and yet they still had not heeded my voice. Uh, we've seen that phrase several times uh, of servants, the prophets, my servants, the prophets, and also rising up early, uh, suggesting the urgency of their message, and yet you still rejected them. Verse 16, here's further application. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Uh, he's telling them that their faith has, uh, or, or their obedience to their father has put you to shame, and you have not been obedient. And because of that, uh, they would be punished. Uh, but in contrast to that, in verses 18 and 19, the Rechabites would be rewarded because of their obedience. Uh, look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure what that has reference to. Sometimes the, the phrase of a man standing before me in the Old Testament uh, would have reference to the priest. I don't think he's saying that they're going to serve as priests. Uh, and we don't know the details. As I was trying to read and, and see what exactly that meant, I did find some, uh, and for what this worth, take it with a grain of salt, that there are some tribes in modern-day Arabia who claim to be uh, descendants of uh, the Rechabites, even to this very day. Uh, so, uh, again, that's, that's probably debatable, but we can be assured that God fulfilled his promise of a reward to the Rechabites for their obedience. <laughs> We learn, uh, so, so that finishes up chapter, chapter 35 there. We learn something about how it is possible, uh, morality is possible in a wicked world. That's something that, that the, uh, the Jews should have taken heed of. Uh, these Rechabites uh, lived a moral life in a wicked world. We learn something about looking to the example of the faith and the obedience of others, and that should encourage us to obey. It's what he's telling them, look, look at these Rechabites. 
And look at their obedience. And that should encourage you to obedience. That's the, that's the point in the New Testament of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and all the great characters of faith that we see, all the men and women of the Old Testament who are great characters of faith. Uh, remember chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 1 says, Seeing then that we are uh, surrounded by, by so uh, great a cloud of witness. In other words, we have these, this cloud of witnesses around us who've run the, the race of faith, and you can do it too. Uh, and so we see value in looking to those who have great faith, looking to those who are obedient, uh, like the Rechabites. Uh, chapter 36. Again, we're staying in the time frame of, uh, of King Jehoiakim uh, and, and his reign. And here we're going to see that Jehoiakim himself is going to uh, demonstrate uh, an arrogant rebellion uh, against God. Uh, we're going to see that a prophecy is going to be written uh, by, uh, Jeremiah is going to give the prophecy, but uh, Baruch, the scribe, is going to write this prophecy down. They're going to take it to the king, and we're going to see his reaction to having that, uh, that prophecy read before him. You might make a note out to the side of verse 1. This is about 605 B.C. We're told this is in the fourth year. Uh, of Jehoiakim, so that would have been around 605 B.C. You might make that note beside verse 1. Uh, in, in verses 2 and 3, Jeremiah is commanded that all the prophecies that you have prophesied thus far, and I think up to this point, Jeremiah has prophesied roughly 20 to 23 years. Uh, and God is telling them, take everything that you have prophesied thus far and write it down, write it on a scroll. Uh, verse 2, take a scroll of a book and write it on on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. So all of your prophecies that you've prophesied for the past 20 plus years, write these down. And we see in verse uh, 3 the reason for that. Why is he having him do this? It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I forgive, uh, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So the reason is perhaps they will hear, perhaps they will turn, perhaps they will uh, repent. And so he chooses verse uh, four, this man called Baruch, uh, to be a scribe and to write this down for him. This is not the first time we've, we've seen Baruch. Uh, I think we saw him last week in chapter 32 where Jeremiah went and he, he bought the field. Uh, and I believe in that chapter it's told that he, he gave the deed of the field to Baruch. Uh, but nonetheless, this, this Baruch is chosen. Now, I want to pause and take a, uh, make a side point about verse 4, because this is not necessarily the, the point of this verse. But we learn something in verse 4 about the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. I want to read verse 4. It says, And Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. You may have a footnote. My translation said that he wrote at the instruction of Jeremiah. Uh, you, you may have a footnote that says from Jeremiah's mouth. These words came from Jeremiah's mouth. And yet they're called, it's called the words of the Lord. They came from Jeremiah's mouth and they're called the word of of the Lord. We see the verbal inspiration of the scriptures, something that's uh, denied by uh, critics of the Bible, that, that it's not verbally inspired. 
these words came from Jeremiah's mouth, and it's called the word of the Lord in verse 4. That's just a side note, not, not necessarily the point that's to be taken from verse 4. Um, picking up in verse 5, we see that Jeremiah is confined. Uh, and so he's going to have... Sorry, I'm going to get my, my notes in order here. Uh, he's going to have Baruch take this scribe and take it to the temple and, and read it. He says, I'm confined. I can't go to the temple. Now, in what sense is he confined? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think he's in prison because that's, that's going to take place later in, in verse 37, or chapter 37. Uh, and also, in this same chapter, in verse 19, Jeremiah is told to go hide himself. Uh, that'd be kind of hard to do if he was in prison. In prison, so for for some reason he was confined and he was prevented from going in uh, to the temple. And uh, I read you this again from Humphreys. He says Jeremiah may have been confined or hindered because of a vow, ceremonial uncleanness, or even shut up in prison. Though this is doubtful in view of verse 19. Because of his preaching concerning the destruction of the temple, he may have very well been forbidden to come into the temple at this time. Uh, and that's probably likely uh, that Jeremiah's message was not very popular. He's talking about the city's going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be destroyed, and they're probably telling him, you don't even come near the temple, don't come in the temple. Uh, so we don't know in what sense he's confined, but for some reason Jeremiah cannot go to the temple. So he's going to give this, uh, the, this uh, scroll is going to be given to Baruch, and he's going to be the one to take it into the temple and, and read the message there. Uh, and if we pick up in verse 8 is where we see uh, him doing just that. So uh, we see Saul verses 1 through 7, Baruch wrote the prophecy down on a scroll. Verses 8 through 19, the book is read in the temple and to the princes. And then they're eventually going to take that and read it to the king. Uh, pick up in verse 9, it says, Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim that the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they had proclaimed a fast. So they're, they're proclaiming a fast, so there would have been more people than usual in Jerusalem, uh, more people than usual uh, in the temple. Uh, so you're reading to a, uh, a much larger crowd than you, than you might on, on any other given day in the temple. Verse 10, then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah. Uh, jump down to verse 11, and after uh, he read in the hearing of all the people, verse 11 says, when Micaiah, uh, that's one of the king's, king's servants, uh, heard all of these words of the Lord from the book, verse 12, he went down to the king's house into the scribes' chambers, and there all the, prophet, the princes were sitting, Elishama the scribe, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Achbor, uh, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, and the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. So this is all the king's officials that are sitting here now. And now Micaiah, in verse 13, declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Um, it, it, whatever the message that Baruch had read to them, uh, which we know what the message was because he, he was reading him Jeremiah's prophecy, it it perked the ears of this Micaiah, and he said, I, I've got to go tell the king's officials. And that's what he, he did there in verses 12, uh, 12 to 13. And then, uh, beginning at verse 14, this Baruch is summoned to the king's officials. Micaiah uh, gave them, uh, I take it, a summary of here's what Baruch said, and they said, we want to hear it for ourselves. So we call for Baruch, and Baruch comes in verses 14 and 15. 
And uh, verse 15, and they said to him, sit down now, read it in our hearing. And so Baruch read it in their hearing. In verse 16, here's their reaction. Again, this is the, the, uh, the king's officials. Here's their reaction. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we, were, uh, we will surely tell the king of these words. They were fearful of the message that Baruch read to them. That's going to be quite a different reaction than what we're going to see down in verse 24 when they read it to the king. The king's officials, the king's cabinet, was, were struck with fear. And in verses 17 through 19, they ask, ask him, where did you get this message? And he, he tells them it came from the mouth of Jeremiah. Picking up at verse 20, here's where we're going to see that message, that prophecy is going to be taken to King Jehoiakim. And they went into the king's court in verse 20. Uh, in verses 20 and 21, and, and the scroll is going to be read to the king. And verse 22 says, Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, and the fire was burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Je Jehudah read three of four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the the hearth. We see quite a different reaction. The, uh, the king's officials back in verse 16 were struck with fear. And here, King Jehoiakim just takes a knife out, cuts it up, throws it into the fire. And verse 24 says, and they were not afraid. They were not afraid. Nor did they tear their garments. That's quite the contrast from uh, what we see back in 2 Kings chapter 22 when Josiah, this king's father, when Josiah was read the law, it says he tore his clothes and he called for the priests and, and he wanted them to pray to God and ask God, what do we need to do? This is quite a different reaction. Here, he just, he didn't like the message, so he cut it up, threw it in the fire as if that's going to, uh, that means that this message is not going to come true. And he had no fear. Um, we'll continue on in verse uh, well, uh, verse 25, I, I want to come back and, and talk about some practical lessons from those verses here in just a minute. Uh, but in verse 25, they, they look for Baruch and Jeremiah. They want to seize them and throw them in prison. Uh, but God uh, protected them and God had hid them. Now, this last section, section here, verses 27 through 32, the scroll was, de was destroyed, but God's word remained uh, the same and was written uh, on another scroll. Uh, so, and we can so easily see the foolishness in that, that this was just uh, something that was written on a scroll uh, any more than our, our Bible is nothing more than paper and ink. If someone were to burn uh, my Bible, uh, it might have some sentimental value to me, but I'm just, I'll go get another one, uh, you know. Uh, and many of us may have multiple copies of the, of the Bible. Uh, just because you physically destroy the Bible or just because you physically destroy the scroll, does not mean that God's, God's word is going to change. And that's the point of verses 27 through 32. He tells Jeremiah, it's okay that he burned it. We'll just write another one. We'll write another scroll. And this is not going to change my, uh, uh, my decree. This is not going to change the prophecy. Verse 28, yet take another scroll and write it on it all the former words that were taken from the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the son of Judah, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, 
king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written, written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast uh, to cease from here? So he didn't like the message, so he destroyed it. Uh, and I, that's something I haven't, I haven't seen, but I've heard stories of people physically taking a knife to their Bible and cutting out passages that they don't like. Uh, as if that, that's going to change God's law. And that's the point that, that Jeremiah is telling them, that the Babylon's still coming. It doesn't matter that you destroyed the scroll. Uh, we're, we're making another scroll, and, and Babylon is still coming. And here's what's going to happen to King Jehoiakim in verse 30. And, and we're going to see a word play here that I think is quite interesting. Verse 30 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. So uh, the first curse is he'll have no one sit on the throne of David. Uh, I think that has reference to the fact that his dynasty is not going to prosper. It's not going to last very long because he does have a son to become king, uh, but his son is only king for a period of about three months. So his dynasty is, is not going to prosper is the point of verse 30. But I find it interesting that he says that that your body will be cast out to the heat of the day. That, that word cast out that we find in verse 30 is from the Hebrew word uh, shalak. And that's the same Hebrew word that is found back in verse 23 when he cast the, uh, the scroll into the fire. And so I think the point is just as, as Jehoiakim had such disregard for God's word and viewed it as nothing more than something to be cast into the, the heat of the fire, God's telling him, I'm going to have that same regard for you. Uh, and I'm going to cast you out, not into the heat of the fire, but I'll cast you out into the heat of the day, as, as uh, it says there in verse 30, and into the frost of the night. Uh, so just an interesting wordplay. We see wordplays quite uh, frequently through the prophets. Uh, but that's an interesting wordplay, that just as he cast that into the fire, so I'm going to cast you out as well. Uh, I'm going to have the same regard for you that you had for my word. Um, uh, so that pr pretty much finishes up the thought of chapter uh, 36. Um, I, I will share with you uh, this quote. Again, that point that I was making earlier that, that people can des destroy Bibles, you can cut Bibles up, and it's not going to change anything. Uh, I just found this quote interesting from Humphreys. He said, Wicked emperors and apostate churches down through the centuries have burned Bibles by the tons, yet God's word abides and will always abide. The destructive critics will eventually wear out all of their hammers of unbelief upon the anvil of God's holy and divine words. Uh, physical Bible burnings is, is something that, ha that has taken place, uh, but yet here, here we are sitting here tonight, all of us holding Bibles in our hands. Uh, the, the word of God is going to stand and prevail, uh, and even if we were able to destroy all the Bibles in the world, God's, God's word will still stand. <clears throat> so we learn uh, fr from this chapter that opposition, opposition to God's word is not going to change his word. Uh, now we just have very few minutes left for chapter uh, 37. Uh, this is going back to the time frame of Zedekiah, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and, and Jeremiah is going to give him some prophecies uh, concerning him. First thing we're going to see is Zedekiah is going to seek for Jeremiah's help. He's going to call for him. He's going to ask him to pray for him. Again, seemingly a, a last-ditch effort uh, because uh, Babylon has come in. Um, and in verse, let's jump on down to verse 5 of chapter 37. 
Uh, and here we see that Babylon is only temporary, temporarily left Jerusalem. So it seems like he's called Jeremiah in and asking him, do we have, do we have a new revelation from God? Because Babylon is leaving. Uh, Babylon's going down to Egypt. Is there a new revelation from God? And he's telling him no. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt. And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. So he's going to say, don't get your hopes up. Yes, the Babylonians are leaving, but they're only leaving temporarily. And here's his prophecy beginning at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt. So the Egyptians who, who were going to be your savior, you thought, they're not going to be able to save you. They're going to return back. Verse 8, and the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against the city, and they will take it and burn it. Now, verse 9, do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you, and we see quite a, a humorous picture in verse 10, for though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remain only wounded men among them who would rise up every man in his tent, they would still burn the city with fire. Even if you wounded everyone in the Babylonian army and they were in their tents wounded, they'd still be able to rise up uh, and, and burn the city and, and overtake you because that's the will of the Lord. Uh, it wouldn't matter what you did. So don't, he's telling Zedekiah, don't get your hopes up. Uh, now time is almost up, but verses, uh, verses 11 through 15, we're going to see that Jeremiah is uh, arrested and imprisoned. He's falsely accused in verses 12 and 13 of defecting to the Chaldeans, uh, which obviously he was not, but he is falsely accused of that, and so he's thrown into prison. Beginning at verse 16 through 21, Zedekiah is going to call for him, and he's going to have a private interview uh, with him. And... Um, Again, in verses 16 and 17, he asks, is there any new word from the Lord? Has the Lord changed his mind? And again, the answer is no. Uh, the Lord has not changed his mind. But Jeremiah, uh, he tells him, you're still going to be delivered into the hands of the, of the Babylonians. Jeremiah claims his innocence in verse 18. In verse 19, he asks, where are all those false prophets now? Uh, in verse 19, we'll, we'll close with this thought. Where now are your prophets who prophesied with you saying, the king of Babylon will not come up against you. All those prophets who, that we studied back in chapter 6 where they prophesied peace, peace when there was no peace. Jeremiah is saying, where are those prophets now? Uh, those prophets are, are nowhere to be found. And so we end up, uh, as we close chapter 37, that Jeremiah is in prison. And we pick up with that as we uh, begin next week into chapter uh, 38. Appreciate your attention this evening.